Good evening, I'm Amna Nawaz. And I'm Jeff Bennett. On the News Hour tonight, an appeals court rejects Donald Trump's claim of presidential immunity with major implications for his election interference case. The mother of a Michigan mass shooter is found guilty of manslaughter. The first parent in the country held responsible for a child carrying out a mass school attack. And a look at the slow recovery efforts in Turkey and Syria one year after a devastating earthquake. International organizations should come and see how earthquake survivors are living in the camps, the conditions and needs we face. We only dream of a life in which we have a small portion of dignity. Welcome to the News Hour. A federal appeals court in Washington has rejected Donald Trump's claim of presidential immunity for actions he took in trying to overturn the 2020 election. The unanimous three-judge panel wrote, quote, former President Trump has become citizen Trump. This clears the way for his federal trial on conspiracy and obstruction charges to move forward. But Mr. Trump is expected to appeal the ruling, which could further delay the case. William Brangham has been keeping track of all the Trump legal developments and joins me now. William, it's good to see you. Hi. So this was a long-awaited ruling. What do we need to understand about how the judges ruled here? This was a clear setback for the former president. This was a unanimous ruling from this three-judge panel. And it was really the first time an appeals court in our history had ever been asked this question about presidential immunity. And the judges very forcefully pushed back on each of the former president's assertions. They ruled, in essence, that Donald Trump has to face trial in federal court on these charges that he tried to subvert the 2020 election that he lost. His argument all along, as we have reported, is that all of the actions that he took leading up to January 6th were part of his official duties, and thus he should be um, uh, immune from that. The judges flatly rejected that. And I'm going to read you a quote from their ruling today. They wrote, Quote, it would be a striking paradox if the president, who alone is vested with the constitutional duty to, quote, take care that the laws be faithfully executed, were the sole officer capable of defying those laws with impunity. This ruling is a, a right in line with a poll that we are about to release tomorrow, at NPR, NewsHour, and Marist poll that's coming out tomorrow. It showed that 65% of Americans polled said that Donald Trump should not have immunity from prosecution. Strong majorities of Democrats and independents believe that way. Interestingly, the partisan flip on that is nearly the reverse. Republicans, 68% of them, think Donald Trump should be immune. So what happens next now? We've reported previously Mr. Trump will likely appeal this ruling. What happens there? What does the timeline look like? The judges have said that Trump has until Monday to appeal to the Supreme Court for them to take it up. Everyone believes that he's going to do that. The question is, will the Supreme Court take up that case? If they decline, this immunity ruling stands and the case goes back to Judge Tanya Chutkin, who could then restart it. It has been frozen, waiting for this ruling all along. Special Counsel Jack Smith has said that that case could take approximately two months to prosecute. Let's look at the calendar here, because this is where things start to get complicated. If the Supreme Court declines, I mean, again, March 4th, that's when this was supposed to start. Mm -hmm. That has been delayed. If the court declines to do that, the trial could start up maybe this springtime. But if they decide to take that up, then things get really crowded. Remember, later this summer, in July, six months from now, the presidential campaign is well underway. In July, the Republican National Convention is happening in Milwaukee. Four months after that is November 5th, Election Day. If that trial date gets slid down, then Donald Trump is in the middle of the presidential campaign, by law required to be in court facing these federal charges. There would be enormous pressure on the judge to try to punt or to push that off or to accommodate his campaign. Very little indication she would do that. So one of the arguments that legal analysts have been making is that it seems that Donald Trump has wanted to delay this all along, to push these off as far as he can so that a ruling and or a verdict could happen after the election and wouldn't impact voters or in Trump's ideal world, push them into the next year so that if he were reelected, he could then determine his attorney general could dismantle the federal cases against him. William Brangham with the latest ruling in Mr. Trump's ongoing legal cases. William, thank you.
Thanks, Amna. And you can see more of our poll online, including what Americans think about President Trump's immunity claim. That's at pbs.org newshour. In the day's other headlines, Southern California tonight is keeping watch for more flooding and landslides as a record rainstorm starts to ease. Los Angeles saw more than half its yearly average rainfall during the two-day deluge. The downpours also triggered nearly 400 mudslides. Today, some of those inspecting the damage said the storms are a reminder that climate change is real. We are having these, you know, these record highs in the summertime and then these incredible storms that we've never had before that they're calling, you know, once every 100-year storms, and we've had two of them since August. So far, the storm is blamed for six deaths across California. In the Middle East, Hamas has reacted to a new proposal for a ceasefire in Gaza, and a key mediator says it's generally positive. The deal would include an extended pause in fighting and the release of Israeli hostages. The prime minister of Qatar announced the Hamas response today, alongside Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who is in the region. Blinken said there's still a lot more work to be done. I'll pick up that conversation tomorrow in Israel uh, when I'm there, and uh, we will be working as hard as we possibly can to um, try to get a, an agreement so that we can move forward with not only a, a, a renewed but uh, an expanded agreement on hostages and all the benefits that that would bring with it. Blinken did not characterize the Hamas response, but in Washington, President Biden called it, quote, a little over the top. He did not elaborate. Meantime, the New York Times reported that Israeli intelligence now believes at least 32 of the 136 remaining hostages in Gaza have already died. Authorities in Kenya charged cult leader Paul McKenzie today with the murders of 191 children. They were among more than 400 bodies found buried in a forest. Today, McKenzie and 29 co-defendants denied the charges in court. Prosecutors say he urged followers to starve themselves and their children so they could go to heaven before the world ends. Back in this country, President Biden headed toward an easy win in Nevada's Democratic presidential primary. The Republican contest was only symbolic since the votes won't count toward delegates. Instead, all will be decided in Thursday's caucuses when former President Trump is the only major candidate taking part. And on Wall Street, stocks moved slightly higher as interest rates eased on the bond market. The Dow Jones Industrial Average gained 141 points to close at 38,521. The Nasdaq rose 11 points. The S&P 500 also added 11. And a passing of note, country music star Toby Keith died Monday after a battle with stomach cancer. The singer-songwriter rose to fame in the 1990s with overtly patriotic, at times controversial lyrics, an outspoken personality, and scores of hits. Here he is performing Should Have Been a Cowboy on TV in Nashville back in 1995. It became the most played country song of the decade. Toby Keith was 62 years old. Still to come on the news hour, the Senate's bipartisan deal to fund Ukraine, Israel, and border security teeters on the brink. Investigators unveil new details about what caused the Alaska Airlines blowout. And Joanne Reed's new book on the extraordinary lives and love of civil rights leaders Medgar and Murley Evers. This is the PBS NewsHour from WETA Studios in Washington and in the West from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. For the first time ever, a parent has been convicted in a mass school shooting. Jennifer Crumbly today was found guilty on four counts of involuntary manslaughter. Her teenage son, Ethan, killed four students, Madison Baldwin, Tate Meir, Hannah St. Juliana and Justin Schilling and injured seven others in 2021 at Oxford High School in Michigan. The gunman was sentenced to life in prison without parole back in December. His mother now faces up to 60 years in prison and will be sentenced in April. For more on the verdict and broader legal questions, we turn to Echo Yanka, law professor at the University of Michigan. Thank you for being back with us. And Jennifer Crumbly told jurors that it was her husband's responsibility to keep track of the gun. She said she saw no signs of mental distress in her son. 
How were the prosecutors able to convince the jury that her behavior crossed the line into recklessness, a conscious disregard, and ultimately involuntary manslaughter? You're right that she, in some ways, tried to blame what we've called the empty chair, that is, point at a defendant who's not around. And perhaps that's not surprising. You know, the trial of the Crumleys was meant to be a joint trial and was separated at the last moment. So many of us speculated that there had been some legal questions where they, one of them thought the other could be held more liable or be painted in a worse light. Ultimately, though, what Jennifer just couldn't convince the jury of is that even given the legal principle that you're not responsible for someone else's acts, when she had so many years of notice, so many troubling moments, so many really damning facts, when she walked out of that schoolhouse, that schoolhouse knowing that her son had a gun and having had administrators ask her if she wanted to take him home, that she could not have intervened somewhere along the way and saved four lives and saved seven others from injury. The Crumbleys are the first parents in U.S. history to stand trial for a mass school shooting. James Crumbley, Jennifer's husband, will be tried on the same charges next month. What precedent does her conviction set? I think we want to look at the specific and the general. Certainly for him, this is a as big a punch to the gut as you can imagine. Obviously, not just because his wife has been convicted, but given the closeness of the facts, it, it, it's uh, ominous for his legal chances. Indeed, I'll be interested to see whether or not he still decides to go to trial if he decides that there are some facts that are sufficiently distinguishing that he uh, doesn't, isn't uh, looking at the same thing. Obviously, different case, different jury, but pretty close facts. For people more generally, though, this case both underscores how really troubling these facts were, but also underscores how really worrying it might be for any set of parents, the, the parent who's working hard to keep their son out of gang violence or keep their son who's struggling with drugs or alcohol from taking a joyride. And how that's going to play out once prosecutors have this new tool is something that I think the defense really hoped that juries would hold on to. And lastly, I want to point out that there are going to be some people who are convicted that we never hear of, people who, with this precedent facing them, would rather plead to a lesser charge now that prosecutors have this new tool in their arsenal. Hmm. Let's hear from Craig Schilling. He's the father of one of the victims, Justin Schilling, and he spoke to reporters after the verdict came in. Do your due diligence with your child. It is your choice to have a child and... You cannot choose to not take care of your child. You cannot choose to not nurture your child. You cannot choose to um, take your own interest over your child, especially when it comes to mental health. So it raises the question of, of, of what you just spoke to earlier, what this means for parents. I would, I guess, rephrase the question, what does this mean for gun-owning parents in particular? Yeah, I mean, part of what's going on here is our deep divide in the country about the role guns play in our lives. I think. There's some set of families that heard you bought him a gun for an early Christmas gift, especially a young man who's been struggling with mental health issues, and you didn't keep it under lock and key. That, for some families, is shocking. Indeed, it led to Michigan passing new laws about gun storage. For other people, guns are much more part of their lives. Guns are kind of part of the background firmament, and it's frankly not unheard of or even unusual to get your kid their first gun. Um, I think we as a country are going to have to really wrestle with how ordinary we see guns. And certainly parents who now think a gun is just part of their culture and their life have to think about whether or not they have been sufficiently careful about the way their child can access that gun, especially as the child gets older. And this case also represents an effort to widen the scope of blame and responsibility for mass shootings. What other implications might that have? We saw recently an effort to file lawsuits against gun manufacturers in this country. Yeah, those have been long-going lawsuits, although every time there's a really visible event, um, we, we wrestle with the question anew. Um, I think you're right. As much as we wrestle with these cases in the individual, and though this conviction is unprecedented, there have been a few smaller instances of parents pleading guilty to negligence when they left the gun around. I, I think you're right that these school shootings are so much a heartbreaking part of our everyday American experience. Um, and frankly, they're going to make prosecutors both angry and perhaps see an opening to either litigate, find somebody who's guilty, and 
you might even think in the worst cases for them to make themselves known in their community for career reasons. Echo Yanka is a law professor at the University of Michigan. Thanks so much for your insights. Thank you for having me. The Senate border compromise unveiled fewer than 48 hours ago has already hit a legislative wall. Senate Republicans today announced they will block the long-negotiated proposal that would address the border crisis and provide aid to Ukraine and Israel. The bill drew sharp opposition from House Republicans, who spent much of today debating whether to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary. Congressional correspondent Lisa Desjardins and our team have been working sources in both chambers. She joins us now live to report on where things stand. Lisa, this bill has not even been debated. The debate hasn't even begun over the, this border deal. Republicans are blocking it already. Why is that? And also, how final is that block? This is a real moment of logical disconnect. It does seem that the votes technically are there to open up debate on this bill. But when Senate Republicans met behind closed doors last night and today, they decided they would not support actually opening up this bill. There are a few reasons for that. Part of it has to do with the pressure on them over the border. A lot of it has to do with election year politics. There is a debate still over the roots, of course, of the border crisis itself. But when it comes to the reasons that this bill offering a solution was pulled, Republicans today looked at each other and sort of blamed each other for it. We wanted to secure the border. That is why we are voting no. This does more harm than good. <laughs> And that's not James Langford's fault, that's Leader McConnell's fault. Things have changed over the last four months, and it's been made perfectly clear by the Speaker that he wouldn't take it up even if we sent it to him. And so I think that's probably why most of our members think we ought to have opposition. They did not send us a border security measure. They didn't. They sent us a supplemental funding proposal that has immigration reform, but not real border security reform. And so that's why it's a non-starter. A waterfall of blame. You heard some blaming McConnell, some blaming the Speaker, the Speaker blaming the Senate. But clearly, there is something else at work here. Democrats, for their part, including President Biden, say what happened is much more simple. All indications are this bill won't even move forward to the Senate floor. Why? A simple reason. Donald Trump because Donald Trump thinks it's bad for him politically. He'd rather weaponize this issue than actually solve it. Now, there is not a plan B for either how to deal with the border crisis or for Ukraine funding. The House tonight may take a vote on a separate bill on Israel funding that may not pass. So we're not clear what happens on any of these issues, if there can be progress on any of them in coming days or weeks. Lisa, meanwhile, as we mentioned earlier, a rare vote planned in the House today to impeach the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Where does that stand? Um, now, this is incredibly close. I am speaking to you at the exact second that we're waiting to see if House Republicans even bring up this vote. They've teed it up. This is the previous vote closing out now. They are expected to bring up this impeachment vote next. But I have to tell you, from my reporting, Amna, I don't think House Republicans have the vote, the majority vote to pass it. As we've said on this program, there is an incredibly narrow margin in the House for Republicans. They can lose only two members and pass things with only Republican votes. We know of at least two members who are against this. And today, the National Fraternal Order of Police came out with a letter saying Alejandro Mayorkas, in their view, has actually helped things, that he is someone who respects law and order. Now, those Republicans who want to impeach him say instead that uh, Mayorkas has had a willful disregard for federal law, and indeed they say he lied to Congress as well. Uh, Mayorkas denies that. He says this is political, a real test for House Republicans uh, in a major effort tonight. Uh, we should know in the next hour or so what happens. It's congressional correspondent Lisa Desjardins with the latest on Capitol Hill. Lisa, thank you. Now to discuss why Republicans are blocking this border and national security bill, I'm joined by Republican Senator Kevin Kramer from North Dakota. Senator Kramer, it's good to see you, sir. Thank you for joining us. 
Good to be with you. Thank you for I, the opportunity. I want to ask you about a week or so ago, you were asked about the negotiations in this bill and an interview, mm -hmm. and you had this to say. You said, if we don't try to do something when we have the moment to do something, all of those swing voters and swing states for whom the border is the number one priority have every right to look at us and go, you blew your opportunity. So you will vote to block this bill. In your own words, are you blowing your opportunity for some kind of border bill? Sure. Well, a couple of things. First of all, a week ago we didn't have text of the bill. So this is something I've stressed from the beginning. This process has been bad from the beginning. It's been too secretive, too closed, not transparent through a committee process like it should be. But all of that said, James Langford uh, did a masterful job, and there's nobody that could do it better, in negotiating what ends up being a bill that's got some, you know, obviously anything that's, that's between two sides are narrowly divided. Some things we like and some things we don't, and some things the other side likes and things that the other side doesn't. All of that said, now we have the text, we have the, the opportunity to look at the text, but as I think Lita McConnell said so well in your piece there, in Lisa's piece, is that this bill is not going to become law because the Speaker of the House says it's dead on arrival. Ironically, the House is trying to impeach the, the, the Secretary of Homeland Security, which would be dead on arrival over here. But if dead on arrival is the standard, there's not a lot of point in spending a lot of political, a lot more political capital when there are other priorities, even in this own this bill, that have to get funded, like support for Israel and, and support for Ukraine. So the, it's a combination of politics, moving parts, changing narratives for sure. But but the big issue is the process and, and that's what bothers me is that four months of, of negotiating in good faith but largely in secret leading to final text and then Chuck Schumer wants to put it on the floor right away let's move you know let's proceed to the measure immediately before everybody's had a chance to read the text to compare it to either HR 2 or Current law. Well, Senator, if, um, if I may, if I may, you've sure. mentioned the process is what bothers you. I mean, yes, there were the lead negotiators, a Republican, a Democrat, an independent in the room. Right. My understanding is you and other Republican senators have been briefed along the way. Right. You had some That's of the true. details along the way, so it wasn't entirely secretive. But I do want to put to you what the president of the Border Patrol Council said. Yes. He basically said that this is better than the status quo, that nobody can argue it's not better than what we currently have. Why wouldn't I support it is what he says. Yeah. So why not? So, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I, great. it's an important point because in a, in a world of divided government, incremental change in the right direction is still better than no change in the right direction. I think the, the substance of this bill where there are some problems is that there is an awful lot of generosity for, for um, legal counsel, for example, for illegal aliens, um, you know, open-ended dollar amounts that, that could be problematic. Uh, Sanctuary cities, I mean, here we're going to reward the, the, the pull factor where, that, that you know, attracts people in the first place to, to run this risk. So the, it's, not a, it's not a layup one way or the other. I would agree with Brandon Judd that it's an increment in the right direction, but does it keep us from doing more good things in another format? I don't give up on this. I would love, frankly, to move forward with the bill and then start working on it and amending it, but that political will is not there right now. The pragmatic approach is, in my view, would be to take it out and, and deal with Ukraine and, and, and Israel and, and the Indo-Pacific and, and the Middle East in general. We've got lots of demands on our own military that we have to meet, and, and then maybe take the, the, the border piece and, and work on it a little bit, along with the National Border Patrol Council. I mean, according to, to them, and, and I met with them today, as a lot of members did, this is much better than HR2. There are no resources in HR2 to do the very things that HR2 says, that the, that the House says they want to get done. So I think there's still room to perfect this, and, or at least make it better, even with our Democratic friends. And I think we should continue that. But well, I do let think let it's time to move forward may, with Let me ask you now. if I may about this bill, sure. because we know former President Donald Trump has had an outsized influence, both publicly sure. and privately. Without that influence, would this have moved forward? You know, I don't think it changes a lot of stuff in the House, quite honestly, but I, again... Well, what about I'm, it, for you? It, well, Would it change it for you? It, it, it doesn't change it for me one way or the other. I've been quite supportive, to your point, including as recently as last week, of the process moving forward, of rewarding that, trying to get some tweaks to it if we can, um, all while Donald Trump was saying no, no, no. So it's not so much for me, but I do think in the House he does have an awful lot of influence. Understandably, by the way, it's not irrelevant what the, what the former president who demonstrated he could he could provide border security in contrasting with the current president who's now going to be his opponent 
who's done nothing except to let 10 million people illegally into the country and wave them on through. Uh, I mean, this is pretty clear cut when you look at the two men that are running for president and who does the better job. I'm just saying that as senators, we have to make up our own mind with the facts on the ground. And I think that the, the National uh, Border Patrol Council makes a very, very good point and has been very, by the way, involved with the committee that was working on this, the ad hoc committee that was working on this, which is why you see the types of um, resources and the support yeah. that they have for the bill. Senator, let me ask you also about the Ukraine funding piece of this, as we know, sure. is tied to the border funding. It was back in December, there was a closed-door meeting in which I know it was reported, and you said you were quite strident with the administration leaders and military leaders there saying that they should push Democrats, convince Democrats that Ukraine was a vital national security issue and therefore Democrats right. should give on immigration concessions. So if Ukraine was vital yeah. enough back then, why is it not vital enough now to agree to this? So, because we can, I think we're prepared to move forward, hopefully, with Ukraine support apart from this. Remember, the reason that we have the border piece into the supplemental is because people who didn't want to support Ukraine insisted on it. And I, I, I love that. I love the fact that we had an opportunity to secure our border as well as Ukraine's. Both are really important, either together or separately, and I remain committed to that. And I think the administration waited way too long and moved way too slowly to support Ukraine, or maybe they would have won this war by now. Mm. It's still in our national best interest to provide them the, the lethal aid that they need. I'd like to see us strip the, you know, some of the humanitarian aid and the direct government support for, for funding their government and rather focus on helping them win the war. That's what's in America's best interest. That's what's in the West's best interest. That is Republican Senator Kevin Kramer from North Dakota joining us tonight. Senator, thank you. Good to see you. My pleasure. Boeing is one of the two aerospace manufacturing giants in the world, so its troubles are a major issue for the aviation industry. And they were front, front, once again front and center today. Concerns are growing over Boeing 737 MAX jetliners following a series of safety and quality control issues. Last month, a door panel blew off an Alaska Airlines 737 MAX 9 jet shortly after taking off from Portland, Oregon. No one was seriously injured. The FAA grounded Boeing 737 MAX 9 planes after the incident for inspections and repairs. Today, the National Transportation Safety Board released its preliminary report into that incident. Investigators believe several bolts had been removed to repair rivets on the door panel's frame that had been damaged in the production process, but the missing bolts were never replaced. The weeks since that incident have brought other issues. On Sunday, Boeing said a supplier found improperly drilled holes on window frames in some of their undelivered MAX planes. And in December, Boeing alerted airlines to inspect their 737 MAX aircraft for loose bolts after two planes were missing the parts in their rudder control systems. Back in 2018 and 2019, the 737 MAX's MCAS flight control software systems led to deadly crashes in Indonesia and Ethiopia that killed 346 people. Boeing fixed the system, but that issue grounded the MAX jets for nearly two years. This morning, the head of the Federal Aviation Administration, Michael Whitaker, faced questions before a House committee about his agency's oversight. Looking back at what happened in the aftermath of the MAX incidents, I can't help but think that the FAA had a lot of trouble walking and chewing gum, um, candidly. I, I think that they really struggled with being able to carry out all of their their duties and responsibilities. Whitaker said the FAA is now working to get more inspectors into facilities to provide better oversight. So we're going to have more of a surveillance component, much like you would find on, on the flight line or in maintenance stations where inspectors are actually on the ground talking to people and, and looking at the work that's being done. Ed Pearson is a former senior manager at Boeing's 737 factory in Renton, Washington. He was involved in the development of the Boeing MAX airplanes. What exactly did you witness? What I witnessed was um, an environment of incredible pressure, extreme pressure being placed on uh, manufacturing employees, uh, those employees that worked on the factory floor by executives. And we saw that pressure leading to process breakdowns in our production system. And what was the response from senior leadership when you raised those concerns? Oh, they didn't want to hear it. The only thing they want to hear is how fast the planes can get out the door 
And um, so that was their me metric. And unfortunately, it's the same metric today. I mean, we've seen this for the last six years. In an interview on CNBC last week, Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun addressed concerns about the company's safety issues and oversight of its suppliers. We're going to learn from it. And yes, uh, the subject of how we interact with all of our suppliers, that will, large, that will be a, a subject that we will be working at for quite a long time. And we should say that Boeing declined the NewsHour's request for an interview with its CEO, Dave Calhoun. But shortly after the NTSB released its report today, Boeing issued a statement saying, quote, an event like this must not happen on an airplane that leaves our factory and said it was putting new inspections in place for the door panel assembly and with its suppliers throughout the manufacturing process. Let's turn now to our aviation correspondent, Miles O'Brien. Miles, it's always great to see you. So Boeing is facing scrutiny for apparent problems with quality control, for larger issues with its corporate culture. You had this blowout of the Alaska Airplanes door panel back in January. You had those two deadly crashes some five years ago. What accounts for it? Well, this is a company that's uh, in a heated competition with Airbus uh, to maintain market share. And right now it's losing, uh, certainly since the twin max accidents. Uh, they've lost a lot of market share. So there's a lot of pressure to produce aircraft. And anytime you have that pressure to go fast, it almost always runs up against safety. And when you have a situation where a door is taken off and there's not a checklist, there's no paperwork or virtual paperwork pulled, that the parts aren't even properly cared for or um, inventoried, you've got a system that's just broken and the company admits it. And there's a question about the role of the FAA in all of this, because the FAA chief told lawmakers today the current system is not working because it's not delivering a safe aircraft. So what's what's their role in all of this and what does accountability look like for that agency? At the heart of this, Jeff, is something they call organization designation authorization, ODA. And what that means is employees of the company, Boeing employees, are given authority to inspect and certify the aircraft. Well, there's an obvious conflict of interest there. Uh, this has to do as much as anything uh, with the fact that the FAA does not have the resources to put inspectors on those factory floors actually looking over the shoulders of these workers. So there is a fundamental concern here about uh, whether the FAA needs to have uh, congressional authority, which is to say appropriations and a little more money, to put more inspectors in the field or at least create some kind of third party that doesn't have a dog in the hunt. Hmm. Miles, I got to tell you, Ed Pearson, the former Boeing senior manager I spoke with in that report, he said that he wouldn't fly a Boeing Max plane under any circumstances, and he advises his family and friends against it as well. Does the flying public have reason to be concerned about flying on one of these Boeing jets? Well, I suppose you could make an argument, Jeff, that right now that aircraft is among the safest in the fleet, given the amount of scrutiny it's had since that incident. I worry more about the system writ large, Jeff. Coming after the pandemic, we've had a colossal brain drain in aviation, in control towers, on flight decks, and on the factory floors at Boeing. Uh, a lot of experience is no longer there. Uh, you couple that with the unprecedented demand for aviation. Air travelers want to get back uh, on those planes and, and seeing the world. And then added to that, you have um, the regulatory failure of the FAA. Uh, they should have people looking over those shoulders, watching people put those bolts back in, hopefully. Uh, and uh, ultimately, they need to modernize the system. They, they've delayed uh, for many years for lack of money and impetus. Uh, to modernize the system to make it safer. So I worry about the system writ large more than I worry about a particular kind of aircraft. Miles O'Brien, thanks so much for putting this all into context for us. We appreciate it. You're welcome, Jeff. One year ago today, a devastating earthquake laid waste to large parts of southern Turkey and northwestern Syria. Tens of thousands of people were killed, and recovery has been slow and agonizing, especially in Syria, where more than a decade of civil war had already made life nearly unbearable. Leila Molana Allen reports on how Syrians on both sides of the border are struggling to survive. 
In this small corner of northwest Syria, more than 6,000 people died in last year's earthquakes, which struck in the middle of the night. But with few resources and all access to the area controlled by Turkey and blocked by the Assad regime, there's been limited recovery. Half-destroyed buildings still loom. Overwhelmed and underfunded medical teams do what they can to help the injured rehabilitate. Hamza al-Ahmad lay pinned beneath the rubble of his home for 35 hours before local volunteer rescuers, known as the White Helmets, managed to dig him out alive. He was one of the lucky ones. With the border closed, rescuers had little equipment and no international assistance. So most Syrians who were buried under collapsed buildings died waiting for help. It was too late for Hamza's parents and four brothers. I lost my leg and I was very sad. But my greatest sadness was when I learned that all my family had died. My life with my family was beautiful. I had a little brother who used to do everything together, but he died. Now whenever I see a small child in the road, I remember my little brother. I miss him so much. Hamza lost his leg from the hip down and his arm is nearly paralyzed. Now he needs multiple surgeries he can't afford. At just 15, Hamza's learning to live with only half of his body fully functioning. He knows he's fortunate to have a prosthetic leg, which cost hundreds of dollars and which many others are still waiting for. But the rudimentary model is incredibly painful to use. Before my injuries, I used to play football. I loved it. Now, when I wake up in the morning, I can't fit the prosthetic rods. It's a prosthetic limb and I'm not used to it. So I end up just using crutches. I'm trying to get used to the limb, but it hurts. Hamza's only surviving brother, Abdul Hadi, now cares for him. There's no work, but they found a small room to stay in. The alternative is a life spent under a thin tarp, like their neighbors. Much of the worst hit area remains in ruins. With the economy already destroyed after 13 years of war, there's no money, and tight import controls mean scant materials to rebuild with. 800,000 people are still waiting to be rehoused. They live in filthy, disease-ridden camps, wading through freezing mud and breathing in a toxic smoke from burning whatever they can to stay warm. This isn't the first time Nofa and Abdo's family has been displaced. They fled the Idlib countryside after her son was killed in a Russian airstrike. Since then, they've raised their three young grandchildren, Jinan, Ufran and Ibrahim, alone. The town of Jinderis wasn't home, but at least they had a roof over their heads. But when the earthquake hit, that new home collapsed. Here in the camps, it is as if we had moved from heaven to hell. Camp life, yes, is hell, but we have no options. Where do we go? Where should we escape? Abdu recovered from his injuries, but Nofa still can't move her legs. They can barely afford to look after the kids, let alone pay for the specialist care she needs. My husband helps me in our daily life in the tent and brings me everything I need because I cannot walk. And if I want to move, I crawl on my hands and feet. The children are deprived of many of their rights, in want of clothes, food and heating. I wish they could live a better life. Drinking water is scarce, while dirty rainwater floods the alleyways in the freezing weather, soaking everything inside the tent. Even before the earthquake, most of the people living in this beleaguered enclave needed humanitarian aid to survive. The huge influx of donations and aid in the earthquake's aftermath soon dried up. The World Food Programme is ending its main Syria assistance programme later this year. And last year, the UN's Syrian aid budget only got a third of the funds that it needed. The family has had no help in months. They feel forgotten. International organizations should come and see how earthquake survivors are living in the camps, the conditions and needs we face. We only dream of a life in which we have a small portion of dignity. Thousands of Syrian refugees who had been living in southern Turkey before the earthquake fled back across the border in its wake. But conditions for those who stayed aren't much better. Antakya in far southern Turkey was leveled. There's little left of this proud, ancient city. 
Far more reconstruction has taken place on this side of the border, but there's next to no help available for Syrians. The dust from building debris here is so thick that it's very difficult to breathe, but just a few meters away, dozens of Syrian refugees are living in the middle of the rubble that used to be their homes. When the earthquake struck Omar Barakat's rundown tower block, it fell within seconds. Omar tried to rescue his wife Judy and two-year-old infant son Time, but couldn't lift the heavy ceiling slabs that crushed them. I tried to get them out but couldn't. Taim stayed stuck that way for five days with the same rock on top of his head, and he didn't move at all. I stayed awake talking to them until 10.30 in the morning. I fell asleep and my wife was alive. I woke up and she was dead. I started calling her name, but she didn't make a sound. They died next to him, but his three-year-old son Ahmad had disappeared. For weeks, Omar searched hospitals across southern Turkey. His former home had been destroyed and the rubble cleared, but there was no sign of Ahmad. As thousands of other families searched for missing loved ones, the Turkish forensics unit tested a DNA sample and said Ahmad's body hadn't been identified amongst those killed. They told me maybe he got picked up by the forklift that collects the rubble and he was covered up by the rocks because he's only little. But I don't believe it. My heart believes that he's alive. Omar is from Aleppo. Like many Syrians here, his permit to be in Turkey has now expired, and the authorities have cracked down. But if Omar returns to Syria, he risks arrest or worse. I'm very afraid, but if they want to deport me while my son is missing, they would have to kill me to get me to leave without him. What worse can they do to me now that I've lost my precious boy? My future is already long gone. Shrouded in his grief, he spends his days visiting the site of his family's last moments, comforted by mementos of his former life. But against all odds, he's determined Ahmad is alive. And so he waits, hiding in this tent bought on the black market, surrounded by street after street of crumbling masonry. I always wake up in the middle of the night. I go for a walk. I look at the destruction and think, my God, what happened? Why did this happen? A shattered life, one among thousands. Living through yet another nightmare, Syrians on both sides of the border here fear suffering is all they have left. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Leila Malana Allen in Antakya, southern Turkey. It's a love story that helps paint a fuller picture of the civil rights movement, that of Medgar and Murley Evers. On June 12, 1963, Medgar Evers, a pioneering civil rights activist, was killed by a white supremacist outside his home in Jackson, Mississippi. His murder thrust his wife, Murley Evers, into the national spotlight, becoming a freedom fighter in her own right. I spoke with author and MSNBC host, Joanne Reed, who traces their extraordinary lives in her new book, Out Today, Medgar and Murley, Medgar Evers, and the love story that awakened America. Joy Ann Reed, welcome to the News Hour. Jeff, it is so good to see you, and thank you for having me. Of course. So, Murley Louise Beasley met Medgar Evers on her first day of college at Alcorn State. What drew them together? You know, it was in one sense just his approach. Um, he was very aggressive. He ran up to her as she was leaning sort of against an electric pole, and he said, hey, you're going to get shocked. You need to walk away from that. And she's like, well, I actually didn't need your help, but thank you, <laughs> because she was trying to be haughty, because she was raised in Vicksburg to be a certain way and to be a certain way toward men. Um, so it was partly his approach. There were a lot of guys who were sizing up the young women, but he just was different. There was something about him. He was older, you know, seven years older than her. She didn't know exactly how much older, but he just had sort of an air about him. And I think it was because he was a World War II veteran mm -hmm. uh, and a football player. Each of those things were the things that her grandmother and her aunt told her to absolutely stay away from. <laughs> so in some sense, I think it was also the danger. Mm. And you use their relationship as a lens through which to explore the fight for justice, equality, the civil rights movement. Yeah. What did that specific approach reveal to you? You know, what's interesting is I think that when we think about civil rights leaders, we tend to think of them as sort of just icons in isolation of their actual lives. But what these were were young men 
very young men in their 20s and 30s. None of the sort of greats that we think of in the civil rights movement even lived to be 40. Mm. And they lived whole lives that included falling in love, having children, being parents, being spouses. And so what I wanted to do was to fill in the narrative about the civil rights movement to put it in the context of the two kinds of love that it took, right? You needed to have the loving family that would support you and allow you to do the thing that could get you all killed. A, a wife that was willing to live in a house that could be firebombed, that knew how to train your children to, you know, to understand that their father could die, that their mother could die, that they could die. As field secretary for the NAACP, that made him a target of white racists who at the time terrorized black people in Mississippi with impunity. And after his tragic death, his assassination, Merle Evers committed herself to the fight. I mean, she became an activist in her own right. She wrote a book about Medgar Evers. She ran for Congress. She ultimately led the NAACP. Tell me more about her second act. You know, Merle Evers was, in some ways, the most reluctant of civil rights leaders. She had no, she had no desire to do this. She just wanted to be with her man. She was a literal 1950s housewife and just wanted her man to come home every day and help her raise their children and go to the movies and enjoy their romance. But that was not in the cards for her. When Medgar died, she was in her early 30s. She was a very young woman who has three children to raise, but she was also angry. And one of the things that, uh, that really struck me as I interviewed Merle Evers is she still can, she can still access that sense of palpable rage. She wasn't just sad that Medgar was dead, she was angry. And she channeled that anger into the movement. She was determined to make sure his killer, who was tried twice uh, to hung juries in the 1960s and 63 and 64, she wanted to see him in prison for the rest of his life. She eventually got that. It took her 30 years. But she also wanted to see the NAACP live up to its true aims, which they had had a fight with Medgar about what he was doing. They didn't agree with direct action. He did. And she wanted to right that ship as well because she believed that the NAACP had in many ways failed her husband. Mm. And so her goal when he died was to right all of the wrongs that she believed took her husband from her. You know, Joy, one of the reasons I'm so happy this book exists is because so much of their story and their sacrifice has been overlooked by history. Is that what drew you to this, this, this project? Absolutely. You know, um, James Baldwin called Medgar, Malcolm, and Martin the great triumvirate of the civil rights movement. But people know so much more about the other two mm -hmm. than they do about Medgar Evers. He's sort of a, you know, when you land in Jackson, Mississippi, you land in Medgar Evers Airport. A lot of people don't know why. If you're in Brooklyn, you can go to Medgar Evers College. You know, a lot of people just don't know who that is. They maybe have heard of the name, but they really don't know his story. And to my mind, he was, in many ways, the most heroic civil rights leader in this country because he was operating in the most difficult state to do civil rights, and that was Mississippi, the most lynchings per capita, the most aggressive Klan organization that, you know, killed Goodwin, Schwerner, and Cheney, and many, many more. The most aggressive statewide apparatus that was sort of the Klan in suits, a literal spy organization that operated out of the governor's office and the state legislature to spy on the citizens of Mississippi. That existed nowhere but that state. And he was not just um, the field secretary. He was the first, the inaugural field secretary. And I can remember Vernon Jordan, the wonderful, great mm -hmm. Vernon Jordan. Uh, I interviewed him for my, my first book, um, for Fracture, and I remember sitting in his office and him saying to me that he could remember, he was very close to Medgar, and he said he can remember being on the phone with Medgar and Medgar literally crying and saying, I can't do this. They won't sign up to vote. They're terrified here. People in the Delta are so scared. They don't want to put their names on an NAACP ledger. And my bosses want me to do this, and they're insisting that's all I do, sign people up for membership in the NAACP and register them to vote. But they don't understand they're in New York. And mm. this is almost impossible here because these people need to develop just the courage to walk into a department store. It's so terrifying that just talking to a white person in the wrong way can get you lynched here. And I think for a lot of people, they've forgotten how much bravery it took for him to operate, not in Georgia, you know, not even in Louisiana, not even in South Carolina, but Mississippi. What would the civil rights movement have been without the influence, example, and sacrifice of Murley? Evers, Williams, and Medgar Evers? I actually think it would have been completely different. Number one, you have to remember that the fight for the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, it rolled through Mississippi. The most violent sit-in uh, at a Woolworths 
or at a lunch counter in the United States was at the Jackson Woolworths. This was the famous one where, you know, not only was like uh, flour and, and sugar dumped on this integrated group of people that were trying to desegregate that lunch counter, they were beaten. Um, they were beaten and bloodied and left on the ground, and it became an international story. And that provoked, it was one of the things that provoked the Kennedy administration to say enough is enough. Mm -hmm. You know, the violence that went through the University of Mississippi when it was desegregated was unlike anything the country had ever seen, and they saw it on the nightly news. And so the incidents that took place in Mississippi, combined with the Alabama stand at the schoolhouse door, were the sort of final last straw for the Kennedy administration. And Kennedy, who had been a very reluctant friend of the civil rights movement, because he needed Southern votes. Remember, back then, these Southern states were still swing states. Um, he'd been very reluctant. He really wanted to do a big tax cut. That was his thing. He finally said, nope, I'm going to do it. And the thing that I think people don't know, because they don't know Medgar, is that he used some of Medgar's language when he did that speech. They shared that they were World War II veterans. He understood the heroism and sacrifice of a fellow veteran. And he was moved by that veteran status. And when he promised to do that bill, when Medgar was assassinated within hours after him giving this historic televised speech, the person that he gave the first draft of that bill, the physical draft, was Merle Evers. Really? Merle Evers Williams was then just Merle Evers. She was yeah. in the White House with her children, still a grieving widow. And the president gave her a copy of that bill. And he promised her that he would do, he would get that bill through. And when that bill started to languish and take a long time, the march on Washington in August was to push him to get back on track and get that bill done. Mm -hmm. And Dr. King talked about Medgar Evers and Emmett Till as two of the inspirations for that march. And they're two of the people that he talked about the, you know, in, in, probably the most when he would talk about the sacrifices. His original version of the speech that he gave on August 28, 1963, he actually gave in Detroit. Mm -hmm. And there was a line that got cut out of the final speech that said that, one of these, you know, one day in the future, we will come to a day when the sacrifices um, of Emmett Till and Medgar Evers wouldn't have to be made. That was the first version of I Have a Dream. That was the dream he spoke of. It was ultimately cut out of the speech, but Medgar Evers was on his mind at the march, and Merle Evers was the only woman initially invited to speak along with the Big Six. She just wasn't able to be there because of another commitment. But Medgar Evers is infused in the civil rights movement, and the, the, his contemporaries knew it. It's just that today, he's sort of fallen out of the public memory. Well, this book will certainly help change that. Medgar and Murley and the love story that awakened America. Joanne Reed, always a pleasure to speak with you. Jeff, thank you. Online right now, hear more about the sisterhood and special friendship that Merle Evers Williams shared with the late Coretta Scott King and Betty Chavez. You can find it on our YouTube and Instagram accounts. And an update now to our earlier reporting. A vote in the U.S. House of Representatives to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas has failed. Republicans had accused Mayorkas of not complying with immigration laws amid a surge of immigrants on the U.S.-Mexico border. A handful of Republicans joined Democrats in opposing the impeachment measure. And that is the news hour for tonight. I'm Amna Nawaz. And I'm Jeff Bennett. Thanks for joining us and have a good evening.